right now on Matter of Fact. They would run and look at the train going by, and, and in my heart, I'm like, oh, like, God knows what's in there. Families living near the railroad tracks are concerned about safety. What happened in Ohio can happen here. Demanding more be done to protect their communities. These tracks run along all these little towns, and you know, if there's a catastrophic accident, it could be devastating. What's the next step in preventing more tragedies on America's railways? Plus, a Chicago community riddled with gun violence must wait for help. It took about a good 25 minutes for the EMC to get there. Bystanders jumping in to treat the wounded. Let's talk tourniquets. A look at the impact of a program that's training neighbors to step in when every second matters. And rising tides are carving a path of destruction along America's coastlines. The sea level rise has got to a critical point where a little bit more kills everything. Why ghost forests are a dire sign of things to come. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. The nation's railroads are facing greater scrutiny after three recent train derailments. There is growing concern about the safety and oversight of the industry, including the 140,000 miles of track used to transport freight across the country. It's all owned and maintained by private companies with oversight by the National Railroad Administration. If you look at the last decade, there have been at least 10 and maybe up to 20 derailments each year involving the release of hazardous materials. Now, as communities cope with the aftermath, elected officials and federal regulators are calling on railroads to do more to prevent derailments. Recently, our correspondent Dan Lieberman went to Pittsburgh to talk to safety advocates and rail workers and residents. They say more needs to be done to keep the communities along the rail line safe. Look at where this bridge is situated. You get a derailment and that'll take the train and the bridge down. A train derailment in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is top of mind for residents like Glenn Olsurst, a lawyer and local train safety advocate who's been sounding the alarm on the potential risks of a derailment for years. Those black round cars are oil trains. This bridge is part of the uh, Norfolk Southern's most critical east-west rail line between Chicago and the oil refineries on the east coast. Ulcers took us aboard a patrol vessel belonging to Three Rivers Water Keepers, an environmental group that monitors water quality in the region. He says this is the best view of what he considers to be one of the greatest safety threats, railroad bridges. This is supposed to be up there. Just look, he says, at the Fort Wayne Bridge in downtown Pittsburgh. If you look closely, it's entirely corroded. And look what it's holding up. I mean, all of the weight from the bridge and the trains comes down to almost nothing. This is why I'm concerned. And this is why we all need to be concerned. The bridge's owner, Norfolk Southern, said this bridge was inspected three times in the last year and that bridges are supported structurally by a number of different parts, adding aesthetics do not determine structural integrity. But Olsurst is not convinced. You need to prove it. Show us the inspection reports. We asked both Norfolk Southern and the Federal Railroad Administration for the reports, but we're told that only an elected or appointed official may obtain them. Does it trouble you as a structural engineer 
that you don't have access to the records about rail bridges, that you don't actually know if they're safe or not. I don't know that the records need to be public per se, but I think that we could be a little bit more open with the professionals who can actually make a difference and can actually help. Kent Harries is a structural engineering professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Do you have confidence right now that rail infrastructure is being properly and thoroughly investigated and inspected? On the whole, I have to, yes. I'm sure that things are falling through the cracks, there's no question. Throughout the Northeast in particular, the old part of the nation, pretty much most of the infrastructure is in, in, in very poor shape as, as a result of decades of essentially no maintenance. And we don't deal with it until we have catastrophic failures. These are private companies. So when it comes to the infrastructure that the railroads rely on, how do you ensure that that infrastructure is properly maintained and safe? We have regulations and we need to provide the resources to meet those mandates. While trains remain among the safest forms of transporting freight, there were more than 1,100 derailments across the country last year, averaging about three per day. This is the Ohio River right here. Wow. So as you see, you know, these tracks run along all these little towns and, you know, if there's a catastrophic accident, it could be devastating. Dennis Sabina is president of the local transport workers union in Beaver County, Pennsylvania. He's been inspecting railroad cars for 17 years for Norfolk Southern, just a few miles away from the East Palestine, Ohio derailment. He says the industry has changed over time. When I started 17 years ago, we had three minutes per car to inspect each car. And now it's been cut back to one minute per car or less. So that's when a lot of things got left go. Instead of taking them out of service, they let it go to the next location. And, you know, knock on wood, I guess, you know, most of the time they make it. In response, Norfolk Southern said a study of experienced crews found a one minute average cycle time per car, but said this is a guideline for crews and that the company's current average inspection time is approximately two minutes adding the company's practices exceed federal guidelines. When you look around, when you see what's happened in the industry, do you think that it's, it poses a, a threat to public safety? Well, obviously, if you're not doing a quality inspection, you know, you're going to have more accidents and more catastrophic things happen. I want to show you some pictures that were sent to us by a dispatcher he said this train was allowed to leave. This one's missing a spring. Right. No, that one should not. That's a knuckle that's broken, and that should not go. I mean, probably that would break in the journey, and when it does, it's going to separate the cars. These derailments are just a cost of doing business for them. That's it. That's the way they view it. And until that's taken back into the control of the regulators and the federal and state agencies are properly staffed and properly funded, uh, I'm concerned. Everybody should be concerned. What made you want to speak out about these issues? Because just the accident in, in East Palestine, luckily that was more a rural area. If it would have been closer to the cities, it could have been catastrophic. We need the railroads. I mean, there's no doubt, because if we didn't have the railroads, we wouldn't have anything. I mean, they carry everything you can think of. So yeah, we need them, but we need them to be safe. For matter of fact, I'm Dan Lieberman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Next on Matter of Fact, 
when a call for help goes unanswered. I asked the police if I could respond. A Chicago community group steps in, training residents to assist gunshot victims at the scene. Plus, the ocean is poisoning the land, and farms are drowning in saltwater tides. The land's going to disappear, and they're trying to find out how can I save what we have now. A closer look at the phenomenon known as ghost forests. And later, why a little-known house crucial to the civil rights movement is headed to a new location. You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine. One is the number we all dial when we need help. But what if that help never comes? That is the reality for some residents living in Chicago neighborhoods with the highest rates of gun violence. Shooting victims face long odds of surviving. The city reports that police took more than an hour to respond to 4,000 emergency calls on Chicago's south side last year. If that help arrives, they have fewer places to get treatment. Over the past few years, at least three hospitals closed on the south and west sides. The hospitals mainly served low-income, mostly black and Latino neighborhoods. One grassroots community organization is trying to fill in the gaps. Ujima Medics is teaching neighborhood residents, including high school students, how to treat gunshot wounds at the scene. Our correspondent, Laura Chavez, has their story. I don't leave out the house if it's too late. Tremaine Jones is a mother of four and fears the impact of gun violence on herself, her kids, and her community. Tremaine's family knows loss. In 2014, three of her cousins were confronted by an armed man. Marcus was like my best friend. Marcus's death led Tremaine to Ujima Medics. She became a trainer for the organization which teaches neighbors, mainly on Chicago's South Side, how to help someone hurt by gun violence. Born out of tragedy, the program was co-founded by Amika Tendaji and Martine Caverell. It was the death of Damian Turner. He was shot a few blocks away from the U University of Chicago Medical Center. Turner, an 18-year-old community organizer, died in the ambulance on his way to the nearest trauma center about 45 minutes away. What could it have meant if someone there knew how to help him. These questions inspired a series of workshops, including basic gunshot first response. The goal of that workshop is to help the participants know how to increase someone's chances of surviving if they're shot, but also how to reduce chances for emotional injury. We always say we hope that the participants never really have to use the hard skills. Over the past five years, Ujima Medics has trained more than 3,000 people at church groups, businesses, and in high school classrooms. So let's talk tourniquets. Dr. Abdullah Pratt is an emergency medicine physician at UChicago Medicine. Isn't there a risk in saying like, hey, we taught this civilian how to do this. Couldn't they possibly be creating more problems for you? I've never seen a situation where lay bystanders trying to help actually contributed to someone uh, suffering more mortality or morbidity or dying because of that. I just been shot! We talked a little bit about what the world you're trying to create, be it a safe home with a close family, but there's gonna be a time when they go out into the world. 
anything could happen at any moment. And so teaching your kids how to respond to trauma is actually a good tool to use as a, as a parent, regardless of your background, your race, what community you're a part of. Keep blood. Keep blood. In the body. In the body. In Chicago, I'm Laura Chavez for Matter of Fact. The Chicago Police Department was asked for comment. Their statement in part says, quote, we remain committed to working with outreach and violence prevention organizations, which play an important role in strengthening safety across all of our neighborhoods, end quote. Coming up. Climate change is altering almost everything. How salt-burned trees dotting the coast tell a story of the past and future. Climate change is altering almost everything, from where animals migrate to when we harvest crops. But it doesn't hit us equally, or even in similar ways. Despite recent storms, western states are still suffering through a mega drought, believed to be the worst in over a thousand years. The Midwest and South are still recovering from deadly tornadoes. And in the East, we're seeing more floods. It's not just affecting those in the path of hurricanes. As our special correspondent Joey Chen found out, even some farmers inland are abandoning their fields altogether. To mark Earth Day this weekend, we're taking a look at how storms and rising sea levels are leaving a path of dead trees. It's a growing phenomenon called ghost forests. Herschel Johnson says he's no historian, just a lifelong resident with a love of Dorchester County's past. How far back does your family go around here? I, you know, I can go back as far as 1832 that I've traced um, my um, grandmother's grandmother. In 80 years, Johnson's seen much change here, both in the land and in the Eastern Shore's landscape. People are building their houses up because they know that eventually water's going to keep uh, coming in. The land is going to disappear. The land's going to disappear. And they're trying to find out, how can I save what we have now? And as the land disappears, what's left is an apparition along the shore, coastal stands known as ghost forests. I mean, they're starkly beautiful, but you get these snags uh, of trees that look as if they've been burned by fire, but they've actually been burned by salt. They're burned by salt. Yeah. Literally just burned from the mm -hmm. inside That's out. It, what it looks like, mm-hmm. Agroecology professor Kate Tully's team is tracking the saltwater incursion as it moves inland. And what does that mean for farmland? Well, if it's happening in the forest, <laughs> it's gonna be happening in the farmland too. It's an invisible flood. The saltwater is moving through the groundwater table and the trees and the plants, they all have their feet in that salty groundwater. And that's what burns them essentially from the inside out. In neighboring Somerset County, the poorest in the state, Bob Fitzgerald shows us how time and tide have reshaped his land. Now I've got a place right down the road here about a quarter mile that we've abandoned because it drowns out. You abandon your crops? Yeah. You just gave up that farmland? Yeah, yeah. Throughout the region, almost a third of the land has already been affected by rising waters. With sea levels expected to rise as much as two feet in the next 30 years, routine flooding will drown out some of the nation's oldest farms. 
there are communities that have fled because it's better to just walk away. The farms that remain are changed too, with traditional corn and tomatoes increasingly replaced by more salt-resistant crops. So if you eat food... <laughs> you should care. If you eat food, you should care. <laughs> About farmers and farming and the effect of climate change. The solution may require radical rethinking, even paying farmers to let the marsh reclaim their land. Things are going to change so much that we, we've got, we'll go so far that we can't turn back. For Matter of Fact, I'm Joey Chen on Maryland's Eastern Shore. Ahead on Matter of Fact, cyber stalking heads to the Supreme Court. And later, history is on the move. Find out why this house is traveling from Selma, Alabama to Michigan. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. This term, the Supreme Court has heard cases on voting rights, affirmative action, and canceling student loan debt. Now the court must define cyber stalking and free speech. Earlier this week, the justices heard arguments in an online stalking case. In 2016, Billy Counterman was found guilty for making what prosecutors called threatening statements to a Colorado musician on Facebook. He was sentenced to four and a half years in prison. The state says Counterman violated Colorado's anti-stalking statute. Counterman argues the charges infringe on his First Amendment right to free speech. The court has said the Constitution doesn't protect speech that is considered a true threat. But Counterman says he did not intend to threaten the musician and his messages were not true threats. Colorado says it doesn't matter what the intention was, but how the victim received it. This isn't the first time the Supreme Court has taken up the question of true threats. The court voted in favor of a man who was sentenced to prison for posting violent lyrics targeting his ex-wife on Facebook. But that case didn't challenge the First Amendment. Justices will likely not issue any decisions until the end of the term in June. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, how this house is connected to the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And finally, history is on the move. A piece of the civil rights movement in Selma, Alabama, is headed to Michigan. This family house was owned by Dr. Sullivan Jackson and his wife, Richie Jean. But it's not just any house. This home was a safe haven for the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. At this house, Dr. King and other activists made plans for three civil rights marches to Montgomery. The Jackson House is also where he watched President Lyndon B. Johnson announce the bill that would become the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The speech was days after Bloody Sunday when Alabama state troopers attacked marchers who were heading to Montgomery. Well, now the couple's daughter is giving the home to the Henry Ford Museum. Later this year, the home will be taken apart piece by piece and moved 800 miles away to Dearborn, Michigan. It will be reassembled and available to the public at Henry Ford's Greenfield Village. The entire project will take at least three years. But that's history that's worth waiting for. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and YouTube.